watching again last night uh let's see a couple nights ago to part three and i found myself really sucked in but i couldn't finish i wanted to watch the rooftop sequence again but um have you been watching repeated viewings have you been no i did the one time through yeah and and uh have just been kind of picking at little articles here and there in there i'm trying i'm trying not to really uh too much before I watched it again. Yeah. Um, although I did listen to a few of the tapes today, kind of in preparation for this, just because there are a couple of questions I had about things. Yeah. Um, one is the you know the, the the day where they're kind of sitting there and John doesn't show up and John and Paul says you know and then there were two and it's it's very cleverly edited in the film yeah. to, to make it seem like he's just sitting there staring into space. And on the tape, though, there's, a, there's a comment immediately afterward from Ringo where he says Tom and Jerry. Yeah. And Michael says Simon and Garfunkel. And there's a little, you know, a little back and forth, a little exchange. Um, which, you know, I think as we look at this, as people begin to go over this and compare it to the tapes and... and whatever footage had already been out there, you know, I think there are going to be some questions that come up about how much, I, I hate to use the word manipulated. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't know that that's the right word, but how much Peter Jackson, Peter Jackson shaped the narrative. Right. In a certain direction to tell a certain story. And, you know, maybe that story is still largely accurate. Right. Um, but you know, with little with little nuances that 
maybe fudging things a little bit, maybe kind of glossing over certain things. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that for certain. I'm just saying it's it's a thing that's kind of floating around, an idea that's floating around in my head, and I, and I don't know the answer to that yet. Right. Um, right. And there was actually a tweet about that from um, – they shall not be parted. The guy who does, who's doing all the Nagra reels. Oh yeah. Like second by second. <laughs> Have you heard that? I, I know. I know of that. Uh, that is a blog, right? It's yeah. Like, so I've been, yeah. I dipped into the podcast a little bit before the, the film drop just to sort of brush up and he, it is painstaking. I think you'll really like it because it's very in detail. You know, I like, I like pain. Yes. So. <laughs> and he, but he, he he plays parts of it, you know, he'll play five or six minutes and then he'll say, and so this is what they were talking about. And we think this refers to this and this, and it gives you all this deep commentary. I mean, and it's really um, didactic in the best possible way. If you're into this stuff, it's, it's kind of, um, you know, it's microscopic in the way that like, the more you look at it, the deeper you want to go. It's all of that. It's all of that. Yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, I think for the in the main, I'm with you. I trust Peter Jackson for a lot of these decisions. I do think that there is some some editorializing going on that brushes that that begs the question of manipulation. Um, yeah. And I, you know, but I think there's good manipulation and bad manipulation, obviously. And I'm just really curious what. So what do you see as like some of the standout threads for? You just named one. Are there others? That you think, oh, this is this. We really need to investigate this. I mean, there, there there's that weird fine line around the, the subject of Yoko, where, and I mean, around the same time they're having this conversation about, you know, and and then there were two. This whole this whole thing about about um, you know the, the the meeting of the day before and how Yoko was speaking for John and how this is disruptive and it's it's frustrating you know Linda actually has a very good a good take on this in that conversation which we don't really get all of in the film right but you, you hear it on the tapes and uh, you know so I you know there and and it's funny John, Paul is both pointing out that there's a problem but he's also say he's also kind of defending their relationship right and and he's really I think he seems more concerned that John is not speaking up and he's let, letting Yoko speak for him, and it's that John seems disengaged. Right. Uh, and that you know that may very well be the heroin uh, issue, and you know not specifically, and you know it, it, there's there's they're tiptoeing around blaming. Yoko specifically. Right. Um, I don't think anybody is really flat out going like it's all her fault. But they realize there's some tension and and they're and he's not engaging. And I and that seems to be Paul's greatest frustration. Right. Um th- that is very revealing footage and you know, we I read that back when the Get Back book came out and they transcribed all that tape and yeah. we sort of know uh, you know, I think that Paul Stock goes up with Peter Jackson because he he does seem very sympathetic to that relationship. Um, But it's still, again, what's missing from all of this great footage is this lack of context, right? You don't have people saying, uh, well, so we get to see the Beatles' immediate reaction to this, but was this typical? This the way they're reacting to it. It seems like maybe the very first time he had taken Yoko to a meeting and made her do all the talking, or was 
I mean, it wasn't the first time she's at a Beatle meeting, but they're acting like it's like, I really want more context. Like, I want to know, right, what whether this is the third time. To me, it's always it's it's always striking how much Lenin got away with by positioning her as his shield and yeah. using her to convey, like, I really don't want to participate anymore, but I just don't have the nerve to say so until late in September 1969. And I think there's a tremendous ambivalence there. And you can see that they're still working together. They still have really great sessions sometimes, but that he is, he's got, he's got a growing ambivalence about it. Um, I think Yoko stop goes up too in this Peter Jackson film because she seems so uh, harmless. You know, she just seems like I'm just sitting here hanging out. Like I'm not, you know, and um, so I think everyone, I think it's in, in a very interesting way. Everyone's stock goes up except for Lennon's because Lennon is clearly like strung out in a couple scenes and like really ambivalent and like, you know, not not a full-fledged participant and it's like it's hard to imagine almost any other sessions at any other Beatles album where Lennon would be like so inactive so passive he's just not a passive character yeah he I mean I read uh, something recently maybe it was today where somebody was talking about how um, you know George is coming in with one new song after another. Right. And John is just not producing at this point. And is, you know, is there some resentment there? I mean, another thread that that we need to look at is the tension between John and George. You know, it's, it's sort of painted that Paul is the bad guy and George walking out, but the contemporary reports, there's no, there's no fist fight. There's no, you know, there's no bust up. That was a that was sort of the rumor mill in right. the papers at the time. But George is interviewed, and he says that they had a falling out. Right. With John, not with Paul, with John. Right. So that's really kind of glossed over in um, in this documentary, maybe because there's you know there's no way to answer that on film. Right. And or or audio. So you know I, we also have to kind of think about. You know, he's he's working with the material he's got. He's right. got to make a film, not a radio play. Um, and so how does he handle that? How does he construct a narrative out of the, the footage that he has? So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot that's sort of happening off stage, And, it, I mean, I think the commentary has to be external. I don't think it can be in the documentary. I think it's the kind of thing that's going to be generated by you know, lunatics like us who have to go through all this stuff with a fine-tooth comb and, and try to compare notes and, and look at contemporaneous interviews and and get a sense of what was happening around this. Yeah. Uh, my uh, Concerning George and Lennon, I mean, my takeaway, tell me if I'm – I'm really curious to hear your feedback on whether you think I've got this right or not, but I, my sense is in part one, Lennon is – more than ambivalent towards George, he's really kind of like ignoring him and like not participating. And George's body language is very like, like he doesn't really want to be there either. And then finally, when he brings around I Me Mine, Lennon just stands there and berates him and says, this is a rock and roll band, son. You can't be bringing around this stupid shit. You know, and it's very, he's being jocular about it as though, oh, I know I can rib George this way. We're close buddies. But it's also just really rude and, you know, nobody would ever do that to, to Lennon bringing in a new song, right? Um, right? And then they have that meeting, 
Um, and then there's a second meeting. Um, and then in in part later parts two and three, Lenin is e- expressly and demonstrably supportive of Harrison. Right. And I think that he I think he kind of shifts gears. And that's why I really wish we had more of that cafeteria conversation, because we get six minutes and Lenin sort of says, yeah, it's been a festering wound and it's gone too far. And, you know, he's he knows he's very clear. He's very self-conscious about. Yeah. You know, we're we're kind of egomaniacs and we crowd this guy out and he's starting to show up with material and we need to do better. Um, and then the rest of the movie, he actually shows George a ton of support. So I want to make sure we make time for George's song in this session and george has a long talk with him about i just got tons of material i just am going to go do a big project because you know i i've got too much now i can't keep bringing it all in it's not going to work with this band and lennon's like yeah you should definitely do that so i think lennon kind of changes gears there in a very dramatic way i mean it's the one upside to lennon that you get um with all the other with all the other stuff no i think I, i i think you're right he he realizes what's going on with George. And I mean, that, that cafeteria conversation is, is I need to watch that again and again. There's yes. So again. Yes. There. Yes. And it's, I don't just, that's one of the most frustrating things for me is if there's 25 minutes of that, God, I hope he leaks that. Yeah. It's just, it's just amazing. It's so revealing of their dynamic with each other. Right. And how they, they would speak in unguarded fashion. Uh, you know about their leadership, right. about you know their 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 position, uh, the, the the sort of power dynamic right. with this band. The the thing about about George, which you know I'm still kind of even after so I spent you know a year and a half reading and every every interview I could get on him contemporaneously and then after the Beatles and everything and just trying to get a sense of you know his his story in this when we were writing All Things Must Pass Away. And George in 1969, even early 1970, is in a much different place mentally and emotionally about the Beatles than he would be after that. Mm-hmm. He is he's looking for a way of continuing this band. He realizes what they mean to everybody, and he spent so much time in this. Remember, he's only only. 27 in 1970 so you know he spent his his young adulthood in this band and so like the rest of them it's probably very difficult to imagine a life outside of the Beatles right and so in you know 69 he's thinking sort of referring to his his comments in early 1970 where he's like we'll get back together they're just being bitchy to each other right i think i think it would be selfish if the beatles don't record together they mean so much to each other i would certainly do it you know all of these very positive comments which i think are you know i, I have to assume they're consistent unless somebody can find some quotes that, that say otherwise right this is kind of how he's thinking in january 69 of like we need to get on with this and this whole thing is like i'll just record an album my own songs is kind of a way of saying like you know and he, he says this in early 1970 i'm just going to record an album to get rid of a bunch of songs because his main priority is the beatles so it's like a side project like wonderwall right. or electronic sounds where he's like you know i'll get this out of the way and i'll get to do my thing and have my say the way i want to have right it. right well but, <laughs> and and so 
I, you know, I think that's his perspective at that time when he's talking to John about that. And John is very supportive. There's no sense of like, we're going to break up right. at this point. Right. So his arc, that to me, his arc is, is very interesting from, you know, middle period Beatles to the end and then just beyond. He, he, as a, as a human being, as a character in this story really develops dramatically. Um, and and I don't think we've given him and given that perspective enough credit enough time. Well, it's yeah, um, and it's a very curious arc that keeps going. Obviously, after the Beatles and through his solo career, and then after he dies, you know, George's stock just goes just keeps yeah. exploding. I mean, we look at George very differently now than we did when it was happening because he yeah. really was upstaged by these two peers, and he was the kid brother figure. Um, but it's hard to it's hard to remember that he actually had done a big solo project already, right? Right, and he was like the first Beatle to do a solo album. Um, but he's kind of acting like he'd never done it. It's you know it's weird. Like you wouldn't know it unless you were unless you studied this stuff. The other right. thing I think that happened. I agree with all of that. The other thing I think that casts a huge shadow over all this material is the the Rolling Stone interviews that John Lennon gives. Um, is it at the end of, it's at the end of 1970. It says Plastic yeah. Ono Band comes out. And he yeah. says things like, you know, I don't even have to check with George. I know that he was tired of being a sideman for Paul. We all were. And, yeah. you know, I think that when John vents his spleen like that, it really, it really colored the way they all looked at it. Um, even though, you know, it's clear now that that was just the space Lennon was in at the time. And it's taken us a long time to figure out, OK, this loose cannon really he speaks in vast exaggerations. <laughs> and it's you have to parse everything he says, because he, you know, then, you know, within within a couple of months, he's on the phone with with Paul. He's taught, you know, it's like it, he's really very in the moment. He vents his spleen. And then the next day he's on the phone having a great conversation with the person that he just ripped apart the day before. And McCartney has a special talent for kind of like just going along with this. You know, yeah. like he really and he keep like I dipped into his book the other night. Oh, my God, this book. Have you looked at the lyrics book by McCartney? No, I keep hearing about it, but I haven't. I haven't well, Grill Marcus just called the book humble, which which just <laughs> I, I I just don't I really I think that's just a miss I think that's a misfire I mean I don't I I mean I think if it was one volume you could call it humble but with two volumes it reminds me of it reminds me of that what Pauline Kael said about uh, Ronaldo and Clara when. Dylan says, I want to be buried anonymously inside a tree. And she said, yeah, that's why I made a three-hour epic about my last tour. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, but Paul, again, in this, you know, he says that Lennon, you know, Lennon wrote uh, How Do You Sleep? And I, you know, it's, he goes into, I, I was writing uh, is, uh, um, Dear Friend and how painful that was. And it was really like, do, are you real? like, do are you really saying that I'm a crappy songwriter? Is that, you know, and he says, and that was John. That was really the way John, you had to let John spin his wheels like that. McCartney seems to have enough of an ego to, to partner up with this guy, Lennon, who he knows is just going to be popping off all the time. Yeah. I mean, that is something that we have had to come to terms with over the, over the years. I think we're just getting to the point where we're like, yeah, Lennon shot his mouth off a lot. A lot. It, it, it was not gospel. 
it was he was speaking for himself in that moment right. as you say and not for the other band members um and he you know his his opinion was so vocal and so certain that i think he colored at least for the 70s and 80s he colored people's opinions about the end of the beatles throughout that entire yeah, time. I yeah. mean, it was very much like he's planting his flag and everybody went, yep, well, okay, John says so, so right. we're going to agree with that. Right. And you, know, you read through the the, uh, the articles and the literature and it's, it's just like they're falling in line behind what he has to say and yeah, there's a, there's a lot to, to sort through there. It's difficult, it's really difficult to take his perspective on that stuff and, and, uh, well, yeah, and you know he's he's also just he's just really rude. Like the, you know, I think the yeah. Lennon, I think the Rolling Stone interviews Lennon just like burning bridge after bridge after bridge, right? Um, right. And the Beatles are basically he knows that he has strong enough bonds to the Beatles that I can say anything and I can still record with these guys. They know me, but you know he he says they ask him how he likes Ringo's album and he said, well, you know, it didn't embarrass me, you know, and just. You know, it's just like, yeah. that's just so rude. Like, you know, Ringo, I mean, those and those Ringo's records really hold up. Um, yeah. And at the same time, Lennon is very frustrated that McCartney steals all the thunder for break, you know, for claiming I'm breaking, I'm leaving the band and he's using it to sell a record. He's and he's just like, oh, this guy is just really good at marketing. He always has been some of, you know, it, 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 you can never dismiss Lennon out of hand. Some of it is just too true. Some of it's just wildly exaggerated and. But I do think that the that interview kind of cast a big shadow over all of yeah. this material and the way the Beatles themselves thought about it, because their own quotes about Let It Be and even Lennon characterizing all these sessions as just painfully bad, terrible, god awful, the worst sessions ever. It's clear that on, on film, they're not. It's it's clear that yeah. they, they misremembered these sessions. And I wonder, you know, how much. In their own memories, including George Martin, because he's looking back at this and saying it was a terrible experience, how much they are engaging with John's memory of it. Right, right. Because it's so persistent. And the fact that that Rolling Stone, I mean, John Winter put out that book, much against, absolutely against John's wishes, right. which I learned just recently, ended their relationship. John never spoke to him again after that. Right. To when? So, to winner, right? right. Uh, and so that that made that interview right the official record, right? The, yeah, the official record, right. and it made it very accessible because he put it in a book form, right? And you know anybody could order a copy of that at that point, and so yeah, that became really the dominant narrative for the end of the Beatles, and you know. It just didn't. It didn't give any context to say, you know. At no point did anybody come and come out and say, okay, well, this is John in the very delicate period. You know, there was no there was no new introduction to the book that said, you know, okay, John might have been going through some things here. None of that. It was just put it out and let the let the interview speak for itself, which, you know, it, it, it has cast a huge shadow. Um, yeah. So, so, so that's yeah. That's I, I wonder. Like I said, I wonder how much they are engaging with that interview, those memories, and rather than sort of thinking about what their own memories of those sessions are. Right. Um, 
So what else? I, I want to make sure that we save time to talk about the rooftop sequence, because when I wrote up my piece uh, for, for Copper Magazine, I didn't write a lot about the rooftop, and I actually think it's, you know, it's like the greatest payoff in any movie sequence of, of all yeah. time. It's just, but um, a bit more about some of these other sessions. So what are you like, what are some of the other frustrating moments you have with the way Peter Jackson framed some of this? I'm frustrated by some of the, um, some of the uh, footage that he uses as B-roll over some audio where he doesn't have the, them talking. And you can tell that he's cheating like crazy. Cause oh, yeah, yeah, he, he has to. He has to, right. He, do, he doesn't have the footage. Sometimes he's oh, – this happened a lot, and I actually brought it up on the Hoffman Forum. There's this guy who's a you know does a lot of video work who frequents there. He's – you know, he, he's really done a lot of work in the industry in the past 35, 40 years. And I, I brought that up and I, I said, you know, there are, there are times where the lip sync is clearly off. And they're fudging it, you can tell. And to me, it's distracting because I notice stuff like that. Right. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people notice that. Uh, and, and he said, you know, this is, this is what you're going to have to do in, in documentaries where you just don't have all the footage. So I, I don't think he's necessarily playing unfair in doing that. I think he's, you know, he's putting together the best visual document, document of this that he can. Yeah. Um, but it is frustrating. You know, it is, it is, I, I mean, I'm second guessing him. Uh, and and I have no right to do that because I just don't know what the material right. is. But I just but, I just kind of feel like is there a better way of you know is it is there a less distracting way of presenting this? I don't know. Right. I think yeah. I think so. This is this fits into my larger take, which is the target audience for this material really is other musicians. Yeah. People who have worked in bands who understand how sluggish the process can be and how you're juggling a lot of different psychological issues and. You know, people's marriages come into play and all of that stuff's off screen, but you kind of you have to deal with it in a band. And so when he does stuff like that, it it really for musicians, it takes us out of the it takes us out of the story a little bit because we're noticing, wait a second, that's not that's not the guitar line that I'm hearing. He's showing, yeah. you know, he's doing a close up of the bass part there, but that the bass is not taking the solo there. And because it's such a musicianly piece it does kind of betray the fact that Peter Jackson is not a musician. Yeah. Um, so those are moments that I feel a little bit. Um, I'm also very curious, and I don't know what, I think I asked you about this before, but do you know how well the time syncs up on the rooftop sequence between, you know, when the cops show up? Is there a, is he using a master clock to sync up all that stuff, or is he is he cutting that to sort of build suspense and, you know, the cops don't get to the roof till a certain point and he's timing it? with all those on the street interviews to build momentum in this, in the sequence. I don't know exactly, but I do have to say that that is a brilliantly handled sequence. It is a, br he, it, he it is so brilliant. Yeah. He absolutely builds tension in that sequence where there needs to be. And I think even if he's fudged the timeline a tiny bit, uh, it's negligible. I mean, in listening to the tapes, you know, just just having the tapes over the years and listening, you don't get that sense of of drama right. building, right? And that you know they, you know, there's this this is moving towards something. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't, I didn't get a sense watching it that something was off, which you know 
could just be his his brilliance in editing, right. his brilliance in putting this together. Right. Um, you know, maybe maybe somebody has, has put it all together and said, okay, this doesn't line up. But I I mean, I don't think that's being untrue to the spirit of what's happening. Oh, I don't I either. I don't either. That, I, that's just good filmmaking. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I'm just really curious how, how yeah. well it lines up. I just love to see someone uh, do the lineup and say, well, he cheats a little bit here. But, yeah, totally. I, I'm not against cheating. I mean, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, you know, the other adorable thing about that sequence is that the cops are so young. They're like, oh, my God, that's a 15-year-old kid who's trying to arrest the Beatles. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's just so hilarious. The one guy just seems like he's out to sea. (laughs) He's just like, oh, well, um, you have to tell them to be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's it's really unfair because he will go down in history as the guy who ordered Mal to unplug the... Right, now, right. do you know of any Mal Evans quotes where he's interviewed about, you know, he felt like he needed to unplug him to be to to appease the cops? Because what's what's clear from the sequence that we have now and what I always suspected was that the Beatles go. He knows it's their last number. He knows the set list. He's trying to tell the cops this is it. This You know, it's only three more minutes. Just just hang in there. It's not a big deal. But then he does go ahead and unplug these two guitar amps. Yeah. And it's a little bit like, whoa, <laughs> like, yeah. whoa, that's John Lennon's guitar. <laughs> yeah. He, I mean, he's, I, I haven't seen any quotes. Maybe you know, Ken Womack has all of his diaries and stuff now. So he's, you know. Oh, that's right. Like, that's right. I just read that. Yeah. Ken's going to yeah. do that. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I haven't read anything. You know, from any articles, any pieces, maybe there's something out there. But it, I mean, it, it, that tells me that Mal is is feeling intense pressure. From intense, this guy. intense pressure, right? It tells you a lot about Mal because yeah. you know he has he, his whole job is it's like a cliche. He's like the production assistant of all production assistants. They ask for an anvil, and he shows up with an anvil. I mean, it's <laughs> crazy. It's crazy. hilarious moment that he actually does it. And it's just, like, unbelievable. It's like, yep, the Beatles have this guy who, anything they ask for, boom, it's right there. Yeah. It's just colossal. But he does, he must feel very threatened by the cops. But then there's all this stuff from Ringo in the anthology about, we thought it would be really fun if the cops hauled us off at the end to make a great ending to the movie. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that just the shot of Paul when he turns around and he sees the cops come through the door and he, and he turns back toward the camera and the look on his face is just pure joy. Yes. He's like, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what we talked about earlier is going to happen. <laughs> He's so excited. I mean, the, the, I mean that, that moment alone is just is worth everything. It's a wonderful moment. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So um, what do you, what do you see as like promising new areas of research that we haven't covered yet? Right. I mean, that's the crazy. Yeah, no, we're still making a lot of. Oh, yeah, obviously, it's it's overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think for me the the broader thing is what I mentioned earlier is that is that there there's you know there's going to be people who go through and listen to the tapes and and say okay well this isn't presented quite accurately in the film or maybe they're glossing over something or maybe they're fudging a fact or maybe they're just leaving something out that's really important. Um, in order to tell a different type of story or to, or to shape the narrative in a certain way. Um, but, you know, that's going to be 
a very small number of people who are who are going to work on that. Ninety nine point nine percent of people are going to look at this and go like, "Oh, this is great." You know, a lot of people are also going to look at it and go, "Oh, this is boring." Right? No, sit through this. Right? <laughs> We're seeing a lot of that. Right? We're seeing a lot of that, and um, that's why I think. It's very clear in my head that the people who are going to take the most pleasure out of this are the musicians and the engineers, the yeah. people who've worked in studios who know, you know, sort of like the the ex- I mean, just the extreme, the absence of Brian Epstein, basically. Epstein yeah. would not have booked them in a cold uh, airport hangar uh, with no. no with no playback equipment. It just it just was, would be unthinkable that he would have done that. But uh, so. Did it change your mind about anything about the breakup about any any of the people, and then did it change your mind about any of the songs? It, uh, I mean, it. You know, you mentioned this in your article. It's it's really, it is unfortunately tied to their breakup. Right. This is not their breakup album. Right. You know, th- this is happening January nineteen sixty nine. They don't break up for another year and, and a half, and. They do Abbey Road. I mean, and they and they have to do. That's the thing. I you know I think I mentioned to you at one point. Um, you know, obviously we've all been aware all these years of, that they're running through all these Abbey Road songs during the Get Back sessions in various forms of completion. Right. But they're also working on those songs and and developing ideas that they don't maybe see to fruition in January, but they do see to fruition over the next couple of months, and so that. That foundational work on those songs is very important. Very important. We would not have Abbey Road as it exists without Get Back. Right. So you you have to go through Get Back to get to Abbey Road. And this this really kind of put an exclamation point on that for me. It kind of that's all. I guess that's always we're all sort of aware of that. But for me, it kind of focused it, and I thought, okay, that yeah, this is absolutely the case. Right. Um, but you know, it isn't. It isn't the breakup album. They're they're struggling. They struggled during the White album. Right. Um, a lot of it was about, was about business too, and and a lot of this is you know going to be running up against the business. And Alan Klein enters at this point. Yeah, yeah. He's like the you know the, the Shakespearean villain off stage. Right, um, right. The, right. The, you know, it's like it's like the first act of. of uh, or the first two acts of the third man where they talk about Harry Lyme. They talk about Orson Welles before he shows up. Right, right. So you have all right. of this like lead up and then suddenly here's the villain. Right. Right. And and that's kinda like this is for Alan Klein. He doesn't show up until later. Um, so you get all this kind of like suggestion of, you know, he's coming. Right. Just just get ready for it. Right. So um, yeah, it's I mean it's just a it's a slice of the story. And you you know, you have to look at at the whole picture in order to, to get a sense of, of what's really happening. But, yeah. you know, it is, and I find myself, as I'm talking about this, and we've all been sort of discussing this over the past few weeks, even though I know better, I still have this association with these sessions being the end of the Beatles, right. the breakup of the Beatles. Right. And, and, and I, you know, I wonder, people who are coming to this kind of fresh and don't know the timeline will see this and and they take it a completely different way. Like they're going to see this as like, oh, this is the thing they do before Abbey Road. Right. That was, you know, they kind of pull a rabbit out of a hat. And, right. You know, wow. Okay, they do this this triumphant thing, and then naturally they go off to Abbey Road, which is their great 
you know, kind of send-off. That's a totally different way of looking at yeah. these sessions than, you know, I think a lot of us have been, become accustomed to because we associate them with May 1970 right. instead of right. January 1969. Right. And, and May 1970, was there was this big disconnect because here was this new Beatle record and a feature film. See, people don't even remember. People have said to me, you mean it, you saw it in a theater? Like they just, like, you didn't, it wasn't just a fuzzy VHS bootleg you saw this on like no this was in wide release i saw it in a theater many many times as a young teenager um and people forget that when it came out the headlines were you know paul is suing the other three and and this was the soundtrack to that to all of those headlines and it did get very confused and it also got confused as their last album because it came out after abbey road and now yeah i think these new i think to the uninitiated to the general viewer it's it's a very different piece of material because they don't bring all that baggage to it. And I, some of that's good and some of that's weird, too. I mean, you, you've been talking about Abbey Road. See, I don't see it as a triumphant finish, really. I see it as a really mixed bag. But um, I do agree that, the, that you, these sessions are the germs of that and that they feel something bigger pulling them forward. And yeah. that, you know, uh, the other thing is they in the White Album, you know, the, a lot of those sessions were obviously, I mean, Jeff Emmerich is the guy who uses the word poisonous, right? Um, and I think that, that one of the very impressive things is that they, they think, okay, well, so we're in a rut, and the way out of this rut is we're going to sit in a room together now and make music facing each other, right? right? Because they had gotten away from that on the White Album. Um, and I think that's actually pretty daring, um, especially given all the stuff that's going on. I have to, before we leave Alan Klein, I have to just say I love Rob Sheffield's line about that in Rolling Stone where he said, the Titanic has just hit the iceberg. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and there is that very strong sense. And you can see Lennon saying, this guy knows everything about us. It's like, yeah, now we know that Alan Klein just did a little homework before he met with John. And he knew who wrote yeah. which songs and he knew their biographies. And he knew that Lennon's dad had been in an orphanage. And he's like, you know, he just was a very skilled salesman, this guy. Oh, yeah. And, and Lennon really is bowled over at that point. Um, yeah, I mean, he totally flatters him. And, and, yes. And it's the, the painful thing about that scene is that Glenn is warning him. Yes. And he's just not paying attention. Right. So you do, you, do you know, do you have any evidence? Because people have postulate that Mick Jagger, you know, basically six Alan Klein on the Beatles. <laughs> As a way of like, as you know, friendly competition. <laughs> no, the, no, the story that I've understood is that is that he was going to come warn them and say, "Look, do not sign with this guy. We had tremendous trouble." And he he sort of chickened out at the last minute. And there are varying accounts of this. You know, one where he shows up and and Klein is there. Yeah. And he just kind of goes, "Oh well, you know, have a good time, guys." Yeah. Huh. And and really just doesn't doesn't step up. Um, I, I mean, I don't think he would have. I don't think he would have recommended him. They were having a really bad time with him. Well, yeah, and it, it's also there's. It's very interesting to watch Glenn kind of broach that subject, and it's clear that there's no talking to Lennon. Like Lennon yeah. is Lennon is in the deep end already. Yeah, he hasn't really even signed anything, but he's all in with this guy. But it's but a lot of it's because, you know, it's very I, the, the the other scene to talk about is that Dick James scene. Which, um, oh, yeah. you know, it takes a lot of outside knowledge to sort of make sense of that. But 
Lennon doesn't even meet eyes with Dick James when Dick James comes by for a visit. Doesn't even sit with him, doesn't even acknowledge his presence, is off doing a, you know, and McCartney, who is Mr. Charm Offensive, <laughs> he's barely civil to this guy. Yeah. It's very interesting, the, the dynamic in the room, the tone in the room is, we do not like this guy. And Dick James, you can tell, is glad-handing everybody, and, oh, this is great, Vera Lynn, blah, blah, blah. But they're really, they're like, I mean, the subtext is, you you ripped us off, you're a suit, you've never written a song, you're getting all this money from us, and we have to deal with these patronizing visits where you bring all this paperwork and act like you're in control. Well, didn't that strike you that way? Yeah, I mean, there's a point where they're, they're John Paul in particular is kind of humoring him, and then it's over. And Dick James doesn't get it. Yeah. He still thinks like, oh, everything's cool. We're having a conversation. And Paul is just, he's moved on. He right. doesn't want to have to talk to him anymore. This, this meeting is over. And he's, he's totally clueless. And uh, that, to me, spoke volumes about, about the relationship. Yeah. You know, even at that point, like, it's, it's over. This is, this is strictly, a, you know, a business thing. And, and, you know, you don't get to hang out with us. Uh, talk to me about Glenn Johns. As an engineer, um, what, is, what do you see Glenn Johns doing that you admire, that you think, ah, that's a real, that's an old trick? <laughs> uh, for some context, you know, Glenn Johns has just gotten off producing Beggar's Banquet. Right. Which, and, do, and doing the, the rock and roll circus. And doing the rock and roll circus. But, I mean, when I think about Beggar's Banquet, I think towering masterpiece of a rock and roll album. And yeah. he, he goes on to do Who's Next and Quadrophania and what else? I mean, just like a slew of, like, classic, great, classic rock records. Um, yeah, and hadn't, he, hadn't he worked with, uh, with Led Zeppelin already? Right. Um, that sounds right. Yeah, that I'm sounds right. I remember the timeline there. I don't, I don't know his career like I should. But, um, I mean, he, he steps up and is taking charge very early on. He's... he's you know whether he should be centering himself or inserting himself into this stuff. He is—he's definitely stepping in to a situation where no one is taking a leadership role. Right. And because of the dynamic they've established by saying, "Okay, this is a TV special," and George Martin floats in and is like, "I'll check on the TV special. I'll see how the boys are doing." Right. But he's not—he's not producer because that's not his role in this particular project. It's a, it's a, you know, at this point, they're rehearsing for a TV special, and he's just coming to check on them. I'm just, uh, I'm just impressed with how, um, how sort of low key and just sort of how he just fits himself right in. I mean, yeah. he's even like stealing the reins a little bit from Michael Lindsay Hogg, who, yeah. you know, is just this wonderful character, just hapless. Like, what are we gonna do? <laughs> it was a little cartoon bubble above his head the whole movie. <laughs> But Glenn John sort of like knows like, well, let's do a take. Like, let's, you know, let's like roll tape. Like, let's do this. And uh, it's to me, it's just uh, an exquisite um, uh, example of how, you know, how, how many people skills, how much of a people person you have to be to get the takes you need as an engineer. Right. And he's right. not even officially. They're not even like, oh, we want you to produce this. They're just like, we need someone to roll tape. And George Martin will be popping by, and Martin is ex Martin is the most is the the most humble person on the face of the earth. That he's not trying to take control. Yeah. 
Well, it's, it's because the dynamic, the, the, the setup is they're rehearsing for a TV special. Right. And Glenn is running sound on that, uh, just like he would, he would do for the Rock and Roll Circus. So the roles here are Beatles, Beatles rehearsing, Glenn sort of in charge of sound, trying to get them to move forward because they're clearly just adrift. Yeah. Um, George Martin is is not stepping in to produce because they're not. This is not a recording session. Right. The recording session would presumably be later, but right now he's just kind of keeping an eye on things. Once the gears shift and they end up at Apple, and then they are doing recording sessions and they're focusing on making an album. Yeah. Glenn is still in this role, and George says, "I mean, you hear it on the tape, and you hear it in the in the film." He says, "You know, I." I think Glenn should finish what he started, basically. Right. Par paraphrasing, but you know, he has the grace to say, "I don't need to be right, right. <laughs> I don't need to step in and, and like muscle in and, right. and, and show my power. Let him finish this." Right. It's basically the gene that Phil Spector does not have. <laughs> right. <laughs> but at the same time, and I'm glad. Really, somebody texted me uh, on Twitter uh, about about this scene because I had it in you know episode of the podcast where. You know, they're working on For You Blue, and, and George wants that sort of old-timey piano sound, and George slips a, his newspaper in in across the piano strings. Right. And makes this kind of weird sound. Right. And so he's he's there, and he's contributing, and he's, and he's listening to what they're saying and, and you know, trying to help solve problems. Um, which is, you know, which, which is where the, you know, this weird boundary is and why Glenn... You know, rightfully had these these resentments about this because he contributed a lot. Yes, yes. I would, you know, I would say he's the unofficial producer, and Absolutely. I frankly always thought that his his original cuts of these songs were really great. I I never understood why he got. I mean, he he clearly they did not treat him well. They didn't treat Martin well. They didn't treat John's well. No. Um, I think they were just in such a state of yeah. we don't want to deal with this. Yeah. That that and even and because he was so deeply involved with it, uh, they couldn't communicate with him. I mean, they couldn't communicate well. Period. Right. Which is you know a problem surrounding a lot of it. Right. But well, it was right. It's all these legacy issues again. It's like this. This. I think it, this proves my theory that in in even in this massive eight-hour cut from peter jackson the subtext swallows the supertext i mean it's you it's impossible to understand this without under getting a larger frame and bringing some more knowledge of history to it because what you're seeing on screen is is one-tenth of what's going on i mean it really does feel like a, the surface is just we're going to spend a lot of time going digging down into all this stuff there's a lot more to learn from all this stuff yeah, I mean, there needs to be a uh, essentially a book that's a commentary about this film, right? Because uh, there's so much left out. Having said that, however, just as as a little bit of a counterbalance to this, one of the things that I mean, we all been on we've been on social media and and seeing how people respond to this is there's been such tremendous joy connected to this. Yes, yes, it's true. Yeah. For a 50 year old band. Uh, at what is, you know, generally considered the darkest time of their history. Right. Which we've all sort of, you know, you just sort of, you think of January 69 and, and immediately a dark cloud appears in your mind. For, for this, for, you know, and, and it's like that week or so 
when it when it premiered and then as people were sort of talking about it so many memes so many screen captures so so much just like look at this this is so cool right just discovering these little moments seeing paul writing get back on right. the face right right you know and and seeing shots i remember just seeing shots thinking like this has been in a can for 50 years why right. has nobody right this is a beautiful shot. well they're well they're yeah they're and they're you know they're clearly they had their own you know, their memory was playing tricks with them. They did not remember, you know, to, to be Paul McCartney and not remember how Get Back came out. You know, I mean, what, yeah. that must be fascinating to look at. Um, I, also, I mean, I also think, you know, the, some people have said, and, and it's not to diminish the magic of that moment, but that is how people write songs. Very oh, yeah. Often. Yeah. Know, you just, you just, you screw around until you find a riff or you right. find a groove and then you start improvising lyrics and then... Right. You know, over time, you have to work at it. Yeah. Uh, as they're saying, I mean, it, it gives tremendous insight into their creative process in in particular, but just the creative process, yeah. generally speaking, which I think a lot of people, a lot of musicians, recognize. But um, but again, the, you know, the bigger takeaway is that this this has been a joyous moment for so many people. And to be able to share that with people around the world on social media, and and it's like these little jokes we're sending back and forth to right, each other, right? Um, these new little discoveries. It's just it's it's really been mind blowing, and it's yeah, it's, yeah, I agree. yeah, I agree. Oh, obviously, yeah, much more good. Obviously, much more good than bad. I'm a critic, so I have to find all. I have to nick, <laughs> right. I have to nitpick. I'm a picky deadhead. Um, but you can't complain. You're not trying hard. Before before uh, we go, I want to shift. Uh, spend the last. Uh, segment on the uh, rooftop sequence, but before we do that, there's, we have a bunch of new people here. I just want to say it's Tim Riley, Beatle author. I'm talking with Jason Kruppa, uh, who is uh, runs a really fabulous podcast you should all know about called Producing the Beatles, and we're going to link to that off the Tim Riley page. He also wrote All Things Must Pass, Harrison and Clapton, and other assorted love songs, a story of George Harrison and Eric Clapton, and, and those sessions, the All Things Must Pass sessions that bleed into the uh, Derek and the Domino sessions. Um, and we're just sort of recapping and, and spinning out and thinking, having the Beatle talk that a lot of Beatle scholars are having right now. So let's go to the rooftop sequence. What are like, what are your big takeaways from that rooftop sequence? Why is it so great? I just think, I, I just can't wait to see it again. It's, I mean, it's, even in isolation, it is just a great piece of filmmaking. Yes, yes. It's, a, it's incredible. I mean, we, you know, people have criticized Michael Lindsay Hogg, like, oh, he's annoying, whatever. But he had, he and his uh, camera people, Tony Richmond's the cinematographer, they had the presence of mind to put all these cameras up there, to have 10 cameras running. 10 cameras. So that they would get all this footage and. Peter Jackson put it to use. I mean, he, he saw what he had there, and as a brilliant filmmaker, he said, okay, this is what we're going to do with this. And, his, you know, obviously editor can't discount the contribution of the editors. Um, it's, it's just brilliant. There's so many moments. When George Martin walks in and he sees the hidden camera, his expression is priceless. <laughs> you know, it's just, it, there are so many little bits. It's humor. I mean, that's the thing about a lot of this. It's just There's a lot of humor, but it's they're very funny moments of yeah. all of that. Yeah. The woman who comes out, you know, it's in the original film, but she comes out and they've woken her, woken her up from her nap. Yes. Like, <laughs> you know, that's Eric Idle. You're not going to yes. convince yes. me. That is, that is Eric Idle. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I was taking a nap. Someone. Yes. <laughs> 
Um, so I love the I love the business of um, the Beatles themselves being so excited that they run to the ledge of the roof and look over. <laughs> Right. And even Lennon, right? Mr. Cool, Mr. Yeah. Like, uh, he is like, I wonder how many people are down there. What? This is yeah. a cool, right? And they, and, the, you know, that to me was just so sweet that the Beatles themselves were like, I, like, th- they have not played live in such a long time. And they're just really curious about who's showing up and what the scene is like, what they're doing. Yeah. I just love that. I just, is so sweet of that moment to me. And there, I mean, throughout the whole thing, at the end, you get this real strong sense of this. But they're really jazzed about doing this. As, yes. As it as it sort of goes along, and really, it's really kind of kicked in by the time they do the the really first full take of Get Back. But uh, as it proceeds, you you can tell they're like, oh yeah, this is who we are. This yes. Is it. Yes. This is us. No, you can feel the momentum building throughout the set. By you know by by one after nine or nine. I mean, one after nine or nine just still has this great thrilling kind of kick to it, and you can yeah. feel them all responding to it and 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 surfing on it as it's happening beneath them, and in the most wonderful way. In a way that, so there's this, there's a couple takes of it with Billy Preston on a grand piano in the basement, and the tempo's a little bit slower, and I can't figure out whether they finally just land on a great tempo on the roof. Or if, you know, it's cold and you tend to speed up when you play live, so it's a little fast. But yeah. I still think that that faster tempo is just the tempo. I, you know, I, I don't know. It's, you know, it's too familiar to me. I'm going to have to spend a long time listening to it to get used to the slightly slower tempo. But, um, and his, you know, everyone's raving about Billy Preston and I've Got a Feeling and Get Back. and Those are great. But his one after 909 licks are just fantastic. Every single one. They're just so oh, yeah. inspired. Yeah. He, he's, he's just, I mean, Klaus told me when I interviewed him for the book, he said, you know, Billy never played a wrong note. He just, you know, he, he just he's, had the feel. Yeah, he's kind of like he, that. He's kind of like the, that. He's the perfect guy to come into these sessions and, and you know, just... Just that, you know, that kind of magical presence that, that they needed. Right. Um, well, that's a, I, yeah, that's I, another thing, too, is that you hear George talking about him before he even is is right. in London, right? He's talking about, oh, no, I saw this show, and he, and he takes over Ray Charles' stage. I did not know that Ray Charles was handing over his stage to Billy Preston at that well, point. He, he wasn't. Here's the thing. So I'm, this, is, this is the deep, deep, deep background research I was going through, and I was looking... Um, for, for any articles I could find on Billy Preston and Ray Charles at this at this time, yeah, just to kind of get an idea of when who, you know who was where when and who, who ran into who at what point, and there's an article where um, he's apparently been coming out on he's coming out in the front of the stage and kind of stealing the show, yeah. And the next night, Ray Charles says, Billy's in back. (laughs) Basically, you know, he's like, he's not going to do that again. (laughs) So he was he was stealing the show, but but not with permission. (laughs) So the one show that George saw was Preston just lets it fly. That's that's so cool. Kind of like, you know, kind of like he did. I mean, George encouraged him to do this on his tour in 74, but, you know, he came out. Oh, he stole that show, yeah. Yeah. There's pictures of him dancing, you know, in front with with George. Well, let me just just drop a thought bomb on you. I actually saw the Harrison show in Denver in 1974. I am that old. And he did steal the show. And Harrison gave him two numbers, and he they both they were both hits at the time, I think, or one was, you know, six months later. And... 
he did steal the show. And Harrison had the best time during the Billy Preston numbers. Yeah. It was almost like, yeah, that's that's you, Harrison. You're a support player. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, I think he was, this is, you know, we're way outside the bounds of our conversation now, but I think he was more comfortable sort of stepping back and letting other people. Oh, yeah, I do too. And I, well, yeah, especially after, I mean, it's curious that he did as much as he did because he does not look like a comfortable leader in the Bangladesh concert. Uh, the tour had the tour had those problems. I thought the tour the the tour I remember and the tapes that I've heard from that night they're a lot better than the critics were saying. He had a lot of vocal troubles, but uh, the band was great and uh, they were hot that night. But when I saw them, I mean, and, and that that whole tour gets written off as though it was nothing. It was actually like there were a lot of cool things going on on that tour. And I'm not, as you know, I'm not a George person, but I defend that tour weirdly. Yeah, no, it's, I've, I've been reading through the uh, the newspaper, review, the the contemporary reviews, and it's really revealing. Like, the, they're critics who are clearly just pissed off that he's not giving them their nostalgia trip. Right. Uh, and there are others who are like, you know, they kind of met him on his own on his own terms. But anyway, back to get back. Yes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, don't let me down. Uh, you know, my favorite moment of the whole, well, I don't know, there's too many favorite moments, but when John Lennon sings, you know, forgets his own lyrics to Don't Let Me Down, and then you watch Ringo explode into a smile behind him, like, oh, that's fa- that's perfect. Of course, of course he forgets his own lyrics. Um, just such a wonderful special moment, and I hate the way they dubbed that out of Let It Be Naked, and I'm glad that it's yeah. here finally for everybody to see this yeah. wonderful moment, because... We know now they prize their accidents, and actually, this this whole film is an argument for how to make creative use of all your accidents. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, I mean, we all know that that the complete rooftop needs to be released as audio. We need to have it. I don't know, you know, when that's going to happen, how it's going to happen, but well, fifty yeah, years, you know, in fifty years, we'll have another conversation, and we'll we'll. That's true. I mean, geez. I mean, geez. Yeah. No. I, I. My secret wish is that Peter Jackson is a big enough fan that he's already leaked it. But I don't know that he's going to leak it. But I think he's he's probably going to try to get all this stuff out as much as possible. Yeah. Because you know it's it, it, it's clearly too important. But yeah. I I agree. I mean, I think the mistakes are great. My favorite version of Don't Let Me Down is the first one where he. I mean, he blows the lyrics in both of them, but the first version. It's just got a feel to it that the studio version doesn't have. Right. And do you uh, have do you have any sense when Paul McCartney's counterpoint bass line uh, takes shape? It doesn't seem we don't have it in this film. Yeah, I don't know. I'd, I'd have to go back and and listen to all the takes. That's not, that's something that I've I've studied. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's they are they are creating constantly and they're running through these and. Um, I mean that's yeah that's the other thing is that you can dig through this stuff and you can find little threads like that. Um, I mean there, this is this is sort of revealing how much more work there is to do yes. on this particular aspect of the story. Yes. Mm-hmm. I am disappointed. And I think a lot of people are is, is that they wrapped up the film the way they did without giving time to the, the sessions on the thirty first where they do two two of us let it be in a long and winding road. Um, they just sort of play them over the end credits, but yeah. you know that's that's your epilogue. You know, yeah. That's your, that's well, your... so my sense was he was very gingerly stepping around Michael Lindsay Hogg's cut in some places, and since mm-hmm. those are full takes in the original cut, 
he's trying to do something different, and he's trying to say, you know, here's some alternate cuts, and you know, we just do it over the credits. And actually, I I sort of I'm fine with that. I think those those takes are actually not very inspired. Um, and and I you know it's it's another area where I mean he's going to show up Michael Lindsay Hogg with a rooftop right he's yeah. that's that's his trump card and um, the other you know the the rest of it's like well you can go find two of us on the original Let It Be there's no need to to repeat it here I think that's kind of his thinking yeah so final thoughts we should wrap this up um what have we not talked about what do you um, what are you going to be looking for next time you look at it? I, again, I just want it to kind of wash over me. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of stuff that I'm going to see differently uh, the second time. Yeah. And I, I see people are doing advent calendars when they're watching it. Like, <laughs> on the second, they're going to watch parts from the second. And the th- you, know, all, you know, that's yeah. going to be quite, a, quite an experience for yeah. this month. Um, which, you know, isn't a bad idea. Maybe I'll do that, too. But... Yeah, I don't. I mean, I I think I'm going to be looking more carefully because this the first time was just wow, wow. Every time, wow. I can't believe I'm seeing this. Wow. Right. And now I can be more analytical, and I've had time away from it, and I can kind of you know think about it right a little bit more. Yeah. Um. That's you know that's kind of what I'll be what I'll be looking at next time. Yeah. Um. I mean, I overall, I'm just thrilled that we have this. And uh, I mean, one thing I, you know, I, I thought about yesterday, just sort of bringing up, and this is the sort of the larger frame, is you know why we keep talking about why is this important? Why we keep talking about the Beatles? Why is this something that we can go so deep in? It's just, it's it's like anything. Even within just that story, there are so many facets. You have four personalities. You have four psyches that you're that we're still trying to understand, then we're trying to understand how they fit together. And that's that's just, to me, an endlessly fascinating story. Yeah. Yeah, X, uh, that's, a, that's a great thought to close on. I think that's absolutely true. Jason, thank you so much for hanging out with us here. Riley Chat is our hashtag. If you want to hang out, I can hang out and answer questions later on or use that for interacting with us um, as we move along. Jason, thank you so much for hanging out. This was really fun. Yep. Uh, Everybody check out Producing the Beatles, his podcast, and uh, we'll do this again next week with a a different guest. Thanks, Jason. Thanks. See you. Okay, bye. Pump up the volume, pump up the volume. Wait a minute, you better talk to my mother.